Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, up, up, and away in my beautiful balloon. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is not with us today. She is out of town this week, but she will be back again soon. Yes. So, uh... The reason for the choice of lyric today is because we have a listener request. A listener request? Which we love, by the way. Continue sending those in, listeners. We love getting those. This one comes from Benjamin on Facebook, and he says, I was wondering if there is a future of airships. I know there is active research into solar-powered airships. What is the potential of taking old technology and bringing it back as new well, Benjamin, we're going to answer that question today, and uh, it turns out that it's not just potential. People are actively working on this. What? But you to, mean, uh, hold on a second. Yeah. So you're not just talking about people going to steampunk conventions. No, which are awesome. Uh, you're not just talking about in fantasy worlds like Bioshock Infinite or like the Red Alert games. No, which are awesome. 
Uh, uh, although some, you can argue, do not feature the most awesome of acting. Oh, no. Oh, the Red Alert games certainly do have the most awesome of acting from Tim Curry and Udo Kier and a cast of wonderful uh, character actors. Full motion video games really did a number on you, Mr. Curry. <laughs> There's so many great ones. Okay. But uh, they do seem to figure largely in our imagination. People love airships. They're well, They're great in this sort of a retro tech world that people like to occupy in fantasy and science fiction. And if you've ever seen, I mean, we see blimps here in Atlanta occasionally when they're flying over the various, uh, like when they're flying over Turner Field, uh, which I guess we won't be seeing in a couple more years. Hmm. Uh, but at any rate, we see them occasionally flying around near the, near where our office is. And just seeing something that huge hanging in the air is kind of phenomenal, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's enormous and it feels like, uh, it shouldn't be there. It's kind of, it makes me think of, um, the, the Douglas Adams thing from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It hung in the air the same way that bricks don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. So anyway, uh, airships certainly do have a potential place in the future. And we wanted to talk all about what they are, their history and what they could be. Jonathan. Yeah. Tell me about airships. So an airship is uh, usually if we're just if we're defining just a straight out airship, the classic sense, it's a lighter than air aircraft. Okay. So you might say, how the heck do you build something that's lighter than air? Well, the, the components themselves are not lighter than air. Right, right. Right. Like the like the the material that makes up the the envelope that holds whatever is giving you buoyancy, that's going to be heavier than air. The container that's going to hold passengers or cargo, assuming there is one, that's going to be heavier than air. So what you need is something that is lighter than the surrounding air so that the airship as a whole ends up being lighter than the air it displaces. Okay. In fact, it just dawned on me now that we're talking about it, where the name airship must come from. It's like a ship in that it floats. It's a hydro exactly. in a fluid. Yeah. It's in a fluid and it's maintaining its buoyancy by, uh, I guess, by having a larger surface area than its mass. Really, it's, yeah, it really comes down to weight. I mean, it yeah. really comes down to weight. If you think yeah. of it as the the weight of the overall uh, aircraft is less than the air that it displaces, then it's going to have buoyancy, which means it's going to float on the air around it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, air gets thinner as you go further up, uh, at least to a point. Yeah. And then uh, so you need to have uh, be able to counteract that, make it more buoyant if you want to fly at those altitudes. Mm -hmm. But uh, the predecessors to the airships that we think of in the past, like the the great ones, of the past, the predecessors were hot air balloons, and uh, there are a lot of different records of various people experimenting with hot air balloons in the past. There's there was the brothers Montgolfier, uh, who actually did so many early experiments, and a lot of their work was so um, influential that Montgolfier till is still a, a term used to describe hot air balloons. Uh, they did their work back in 1783. They demonstrated hot air balloons to French royals, um, who, if you know your history, <laughs> 1783, in a few years, they had bigger things on their on their minds, but not for long because their minds ended up being separated from the rest of their bodies. Um, but this is rate, darker than we expected. Well, you know, French Revolution, it was a, it was a rough time for everybody. Right. OK. What did they send up in their balloons? So they, they sent up. Uh, well, first of all, their balloons were made out of taffeta. But it was uh, varnished with alum, and they launched a sheep, a duck, <laughs> and a rooster. I don't, I don't know what either of those things are. What taffeta and alum? No, you don't know taffeta. <laughs> okay, taffeta. Look, 
You've lived in the South for how long and you've never seen like a taffeta dress? My whole life. What's taffeta? It's a, it's is a fabric. It candy? It's a fabric. It's taffeta not a is a candy. fabric. No. And then, uh, alum was what allowed it to remain gas tight, essentially. Alum. Hot air tight. That sounds like some British slang for aluminium. No. Did you ever, did you, <laughs> did you ever watch any Warner Brothers cartoons where they had the alum and a, and a character would end up encountering it and then their mouth would shrivel up into a teeny tiny spot like it was, the sourest thing they had ever put in their mouths. No, you're blowing my mind. Wow, you have, I've got to educate you on cartoons, buddy. Okay. So anyway, uh, it was essentially to treat the material so it would keep the hot air in. Okay. So they, they heated up the air and the hot air balloon. That's what allowed it to have a buoyancy. And again, the sheep, duck, and rooster went on a little fun trip, uh, across the lake, as I recall, uh, from, from reading. I wasn't there. <laughs> Don't want to give that indication. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, over in Gay Paris, Jacques Charles and, and the brothers Robert uh, demonstrated a balloon that used hydrogen rather than hot air to achieve buoyancy. So hydrogen weighs less than, than air. It's lighter than air, mm-hmm. right? Um, also helium, same thing. So not, not that helium and hydrogen are the same thing. They're not, but it's also lighter than air. There are some fundamental differences between helium and hydrogen that we'll talk about in this podcast. Yep. But at any rate, uh, that ended up being kind of the three main options for achieving buoyancy with a lighter than air aircraft. Either you use hot air or you use helium or you use hydrogen to uh, create that, that buoyant nature that you need in order for you to fly. Now, flying in those early days what pretty much meant floating, that you didn't have a whole lot of control over where you went. In fact, there were some people in the early, early <laughs> days of hot air balloons who said steering was going to be impossible and only adult would pursue an, any attempt to steer. Well, could you just flap your arms? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that wouldn't really help you, you too blow much. Blow really hard. But that was the thing was that there were, there were cynics who said there's no way that we'll ever discover any means of, th- this is a curiosity at best. Yeah. Because there's no practical application. You will only go where the wind blows you. Like if you want to mail something, but you don't care who you're mailing it to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You put it in the bottle and you throw it in the ocean, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, there were people who said that, but, then we got into some developments with actual airships beyond just the hot air balloon approach. Back in 1784, which was shortly after those hot air balloon demonstrations, uh, you had Jean-Baptiste Musner, who, or Musnier, I should say, who proposed a new shape for an aircraft with an oblong gas bag, which is that <laughs> sort of cigar shape that we think of as blimp. The blimp shape. Yeah. He was the one who proposed that first, uh, which would then be adopted by future builders. And that was the birth of the dirigible. So in 1852, Henri Giffard builds an airship that uses a steam engine to drive a propeller for uh, propulsion. So you've got the steam engine that's turning a propeller. Well, Um, once you got all that, sounds like you're kind of set. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Steam engines... Pretty heavy. Okay. That's true. So you needed to really counteract a lot of weight to get buoyant. And so those early, early ones were not very good airships. They couldn't go very high. Uh, also, there's always a danger with something like steam. You know, you gotta, you gotta make a fire to generate the heat to right. create the steam, right? Yeah. Fire in these aircrafts are not always great. It's not good to necessarily have them together. Especially if there happens to be made, uh, using hydrogen as its method of attaining buoyancy, because hydrogen in the right proportion mixed with oxygen is not just flammable, it's explosive. 
Yeah. Right? And we'll talk a, a bit about the famous Hindenburg disaster because that's one everyone thinks about with these airships. We will get to that. Um, at any rate, it was not, it, it was the, the basic elements were there. Yes. The engine to provide propulsion, the method to get buoyancy, but it still hadn't been perfected to a point where it was practical. Uh, then you had the uh, Arion airship of 1860, which was made up of three cylindrical gas bags that were tethered together side by side. So instead of one massive envelope, it had three of them. Okay. In 1872, uh, a fellow by the name Paul Heinlein or Henlein flew a dirigible powered by an internal combustion engine. Also an issue. Same as the steam engine. Very heavy, uh, dangerous, but so it was not very effective. Uh, made it really hard to achieve buoyancy. 1884, Charles Renard and Arthur Krebs designed and built La France, which was an airship that used electricity for propulsion. Now you're okay. on to something. Yeah. Because it, you can make a much lighter propulsion system using an electrical motor than you could with a, a gasoline-powered engine or a steam engine. Jonathan, when did we get the famous, uh, the sort of name brand example of the dirigible, the Zeppelin? I thought it was the Ferdinand. Because it's named after Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, right? <laughs> this is like the Zeppelin. Is is it sort of like the Xerox or the Google or the Frisbee of dirigibles? It's sort of. Zeppelin. Uh, or is, is a Zeppelin actually a specific type of dirigible? It's specific, but it also is because the design that Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin came up with was so effective. Yeah. Now, now, the earliest one, the LZ-1 or lz Eins, if you prefer, um, not that effective. Uh, it, it, it had some problems. It was 420 feet long, which is about 128 meters. It was 38 and a half feet in diameter, which is nearly 12 meters in diameter. And it used hydrogen for buoyancy. Uh, it required a little less than 400,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. That's about 11,300 cubic meters. And that first flight wasn't until 1900. He started designing it in 1898. He had built it by 1899, waited for 1900 because, you know, it kind of seemed like a significant sort of mark of the turn of the century, <laughs> um, depending upon your view of when the century turns. And uh, and he used two gasoline engines to steer. Uh, it actually had two different compartments on the base of it. So it's, again, this oblong shape, that cigar-like shape with two uh, compartments on the underside uh, each of them with a gasoline engine that would drive propellers. But uh, some things it didn't have, which later models totally would have, included um, stability fins. Like there were no fins or wings to provide any sort of stability. And so it wasn't an incredible success right out of the gate. Uh, one of the engines failed right away when they, they launched for the test flight. Yeah. And... Without those fins for stability, it made it very difficult to maneuver oh, this I'm particular sure. <laughs> di you know, Zeppelin. But what happened was Fernand did what scientists do. You look at your experiment, you see where you failed, you go and you refine it, and then you try again. And so he did. And he began to make Zeppelins that were incredibly effective. And uh, and we still call them Zeppelins, not, not Ferdinands, as I put in my note. Um now, the most famous, I would argue, would be the <laughs> LZ-129. Yeah. That's the Hindenburg. Right. Now, it was actually the the sort of the flagship of a class of Zeppelins that all were called Hindenburg class. I mean, we forget that for a while, Zeppelins were big. Yeah. I mean, I'm not physically big, but like they were doing business. I mean, yeah. 
they were they were how very wealthy people were able to get across massive distances in much less time than it would take if you were to say take a, a ship. Yeah. Right. You you could get there faster. Uh, it's really expensive, um, and uh, they were also useful for things like uh, surveillance, reconnaissance, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, the Hindenburg is famous for the disaster on May 6, 1937. That's when the Hindenburg burst into flame. It was it was reaching the end of a transatlantic flight. Right, so it was coming into New Jersey, wasn't it? Yeah, it was coming in, and there was actually a ground crew active trying to uh, bring the, the Zeppelin in. That's one of the things about these lighter-than-air aircraft, is that in order for them to land, they usually need to have some sort of either docking station that they can latch onto or a ground crew that ends up grabbing tethers to help guide it into its final position. Right. So you see those like people with the ropes and everything. Yeah. And usually that also involves venting some hydrogen gas and replacing it with air, which makes the, the, the Zeppelin heavier. Uh, your goal is to do that very gradually so that you can come in for a nice smooth landing. Obviously, if you did that too quickly, then you would plummet. Right. So it's a very delicate procedure. Now, in this case, the Hindenburg caught fire. Like we said, hydrogen extremely flammable, as was p- potentially as was the covering. There's some disagreement about whether or not the covering itself was what caused the real problem. Yeah, I think people don't really know for sure what caused the problem. No, there's there's, there's, there's some sort of debates about it. There are debates. Uh, I tend to side more with the hydrogen uh, hypothesis than the covering hypothesis, but but either could be correct. And in any case, tragically, 36 people died in this disaster. Uh, one of them was a member of the ground crew. The others were either passengers or crew members of the Hindenburg. Uh, not everyone died. There were survivors. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that all aboard died. Um, but at any rate, that definitely raised the concern about how hydrogen, this was not the first disaster, by the way, not yeah. even the first disaster with a Zeppelin. Um, in fact, one of the early Zeppelins crashed in Germany and the response in Germany was that people contributed money so that a new, better one could be built. That was the response to the disaster in Germany. <laughs> uh, but that was that Strange. was not the Hindenburg. It was an earlier one. In fact, there, there are stories, although it could be folklore, that uh, around the crash site, Germans gathered and sang songs together uh, as sort of a, a kind of show of support for the endeavor because they believed so strongly in the... Um, the promise of the future that was the Zeppelin at the time. Creepy. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, the the it really kind of drove home the dangers of hydrogen. You mean uh, the Hindenburg disaster? The Hindenburg did. disaster yeah. did, and Especially of course, since it, it, it got live coverage. Yeah, right? it was it was filmed. The whole thing was filmed, and you have Herbert Morrison who did the the commentary. That was where the "Oh, the humanity" comes from. Right. Uh, where you know the distress in his voice is clear. I mean, it's it's not a not an not in any way an emotionless kind of coverage. Um, and so uh, that really kind of pushed back uh, the, the, the role of the Zeppelin in the world. I mean, that disaster was so well publicized that it really started to slow down. Plus, you have the literal rise of the, the airplane around the same time. I mean, you know, the, the Brothers Wright had been working since, since the early 1900s building the first airplanes and they were starting to come into prominence. The aircraft in general were starting to really rise in prominence and the airship began to kind of fade away. But now we are hearing about them coming back. And of course, you know, some of them have been around like blimps have been around 
for uh, ages. We've seen them in things like at sporting events, like Goodyear yeah, Blimp being the big one. But blimps are they're a novelty. Yeah, they're they're meant mainly as either a way to uh to create like a tourism attraction or it's an advertising thing yeah. you know or it's sometimes a means of getting some sort of unique angle on a large mm-hmm. event but it tends to be for what you might think of as kind of entertainment or or commercial purposes in that sense rather yeah. than a true way of moving around cargo or people so well, I have some questions then okay. about why airships would really be coming back. I mean, now that we've sunk so much money and research and time into perfecting heavier-than-air aircraft, sure, like uh, airplanes and helicopters, yeah. Why, why go back to airships? What advantages do they provide? Well, a true airship, the biggest advantage is that it doesn't take a whole lot of energy to get them aloft, right? Because they're using, Ah, they're using, they're using some sort of lighter than air gas already to get aloft. They don't have to use thrust. So an airplane in order to fly requires thrust so they can generate lift, right? The wings get the lift Mm -hmm. and that's what counteracts the weight of the plane and you can get up into the air. Yeah. There's a, there's a reason you have to get going really fast on the runway in order to take off in an airplane. You you can't just kind of hop up. You've got to get that force going in the uh, at the front of the plane to slam that air down below the wings and lift the aircraft up. Right. Yeah, you're beating the air into submission. Yeah. That's that's what helicopter pilots r- describe uh, flying a helicopter. <laughs> that sounds accurate. Yeah. I mean, so with a with a uh, lighter than air aircraft, you don't need to do that. The energy you expend is just to steer, to navigate, to propel yourself yeah. to wherever you're going. But you don't have to expend energy to stay in the air. Because of that, they are very energy efficient. They require far less energy. And if you need to do something that requires you to be in the air for a long time, uh, for example, to hover in a spot and to do something uh, you know, that's related to being in a specific geographic location, then lighter than air aircraft is the way to go because we've discussed this with flying drones. One of the problems with them is that they run out of energy and then you've got to recharge them. And if they run out of energy relatively quickly, like within the span of an, of, of less than an hour, then their, their usability is limited by that. Right. But an airship can remain there for as long as it needs to be there, uh, depending upon whether it's manned or unmanned. Obviously if it's a manned airship, then eventually you're going to have, Demands that are going to require it to land just for the people aboard. But unmanned airships are also a possibility. Yeah. And those could stay in a location for as long as their energy would allow them to maintain that position. Keeping in mind that if they encounter truly severe weather, then they need to clear out because most of them are rated for pretty serious winds because they need to be. Yeah. But even at that, those serious winds, that's like an extreme case and anything beyond that, they are, they would be in serious jeopardy of damage. Would there be any advantage to using an airship in lieu of something like a weather balloon? Well, it depends on the, uh, the, uh, first of all, yes, because you can steer it. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's a big (laughs) one. Um, and also it would depend upon what the use is. So if you were using it to study weather, you could do that. Although weather balloons are pretty well, uh, uh, pretty well suited for that kind of use. But if yeah. you wanted to do something like surveillance, 
whether that's, ah. uh, you know, it doesn't have to be military surveillance. That's what everyone immediately goes to. You know, they think, oh, like military surveillance. That could be one use of it. But security surveillance, let's say that you have an enormous event like the Olympics or the World Cup, and you want to have a uh, overhead view of what's going on in order to provide better security, then something that can hover without expending a lot of energy would be really useful. So surveillance is a big one, whether, again, it's security or wartime or whatever. Environmental monitoring is another one. You would probably have an unmanned craft for this, although you could do a manned craft as well, to uh, in- monitor any kind of region for any sort of environmental changes, to study uh, uh, subtle changes in, in a climate or uh, just other types of environmental changes like a, like a fire. That sort of stuff, uh, again, that hovering ability comes in really handy. Yeah. Um, and you can stay there for as long as you need it to stay. Uh, or near space operations. So airships today can get really high. You remember, uh, you know, Felix, who <laughs> jumped out of his, his balloon to jump from space. Um, it's kind of the same sort of thing. You can get airships that can get to near space conditions, which uh-huh. means you can do research at that level. Or if there are any other kind of operations you need to do at that altitude, it's a good um, it's a good choice because again, you don't have to expend that much energy to get them up there. The buoyancy does all the work, so you're not spending tons of energy just to get to the right altitude. Uh, also, you can use it to move cargo, and it's kind of crazy how much cargo you can move with the right size of airship. Well, yeah, that especially seems like that'd be a big help because with an airship. The amount of fuel you're using it seems like it, it wouldn't nearly have as much to do with the weight of the aircraft. Like when you're using heavier than air aircraft, you need more fuel if the aircraft is heavier. Right. Yeah, because you have to provide even more thrust to overcome the weight yeah. of the of the combined of everything in the aircraft. This is why if you fly commercially, occasionally you'll run into a situation where there are problems because there's too much weight on the plane and they have to either you know, deny some people the ability to get on that plane or make other considerations. This actually does happen. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it happens more frequently on smaller aircraft, obviously. The larger aircraft tend to be pretty powerful, but uh, it is something that has to be taken into consideration. With an airship that's lighter than air, it's less of a problem. Again, as long as the capacity of the airship is great enough to overcome that weight, then you're good to go. So there are airships that at least proposed airships that could carry as much as 500 metric tons of cargo. That's a lot of cargo. And think about it. You can go from the point of pickup to the point of delivery and not have to worry about geographical features getting in the way. You go over them. So if there's a forest or an a lake or an ocean or oh. mountains, you go over all that. Or maybe a tundra. I mean, it sounds like this would be very useful for delivering cargo to places that are otherwise hard to reach to remote locations, don't have good road access, stuff like that. And there's still a call for using it as a form of luxury transport. Really? Yeah. I mean, well, think of it this way. You could take a transatlantic cruise if you wanted, and it's a, an interesting experience. I have not personally gone on one, but my wife has. My wife went on a transatlantic cruise and that's, you know, it's, that's definitely a luxury, right? Yeah. Um, it turned out to assume (laughs) it turned out to be uh, a rollicking good time because apparently it was a bit of a, uh, uh, a wavy journey, but you could do something similar in an airship. It would take less time, top 
speed of uh, airships that are being proposed today are in the hundreds of miles per hour. You know, but, I also recall transatlantic cruises being set back by a disaster in the early 1900s. That's a totally different podcast. So, <laughs> uh, yes, but, uh, but that is also true. So it could very well still be something that is invested in for, for luxury air travel. Mm-hmm. So for people who want the experience of travel where they're, they're going over great distances, uh, but they want it to be this kind of luxury vacation experience. They're not so much concerned on getting from point A to point B as fast as possible. The journey no, itself is part of the so. vacation. <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, it does. it's got to be. How fast can something like this go? Well, depending upon the one you're looking at, some of them can go around 200 miles per hour. So what? <laughs> yeah, because wow. some of them, some of the airships that we're going to talk about right now, I guess it's a good time to 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 segue into it, are hybrids in the sense that they are not lighter than air aircraft. They're actually heavier than air aircraft. They're using some form of gas, like mostly it's helium these days, because again, hydrogen is so volatile that no one really wants to work with it in huge volumes. But they're using helium to offset some of the weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, the case of the aeroscraft, it's uh, about 60% of the aircraft's weight is offset by helium. Uh, there's another one called the Dynalifter, and that one I think is more like 48% of the uh, aircraft's weight is offset by helium. The rest of the weight has to be offset by something else or else it's not going to fly. And in this case, it's lift. It's the actual design of the airship itself, along with uh, some some wings and fins that help provide lift. And it has to get up to a cruising speed so that the lift ends up counteracting the rest of the weight and then it can take off and it can fly. So in this case, these are airships that need to move in order for them to maintain flight. If they were to stop, they would start sinking because they're heavier than the air around them. I'm just trying to think. It seems like there would be a trade-off because if you're increasing some part of the airplane in order to make a pocket to hold lighter-than-air gas, aren't you increasing uh, the surface area of the airplane and cutting down on its aerodynamic capabilities? You can still make it aerodynamic in in the right shapes. And so you can't really call these airplanes either. They're not, they don't look like, they look more like blimps than they look like airplanes. Yeah. They really do look more like a a dirigible or a Zeppelin than an airplane, but they look like kind of a dirigible or Zeppelin that, uh, that has a funky shape to it and wings, Uh, stubby, (laughs) stubby wings at that. They don't look like airplane wings. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where if they, they're moving at the right speed, they're generating enough lift to counteract that the rest of that weight. Um, and the neat thing about these is that they can come down uh, pr- without the use of a ground crew. And, uh, for example, the Aeroscraft, which is a proposed one, uh, there's a prototype called the Pelican that's already been built. Uh, this this was a DARPA-funded initiative initially, and it was uh, uh, originally under Project Walrus. Is the name of the project under DARPA. Project <laughs> Walrus, uh, the funding... It flies for, like a walrus. Yeah, yes, exactly. It, uh, the funding for Project Walrus ended in 2010, but the funding for Aeroscraft has continued in some form or another uh, since then, and they developed the Pelican prototype vehicle, which uh, they hope to use as a guide for a fleet of aircraft, um, something like 24 aircraft that... Uh, they're going to require three billion dollars in investment in order to build these things. All right, but the Cuckoo largest, you. yeah, the, <laughs> the largest one would be able to carry about two hundred fifty tons of cargo and passengers. Now they use special helium tanks in their design, uh-huh. and those helium tanks can then re- release helium into the main compartment, 
which would allow it to have this uh, this buoyancy for to counteract 60% of the aircraft's weight. Uh, when they're coming into land, they can pump helium from that main compartment back oh. into the compressed tanks. Okay. And then they fill up that space with regular air, which is heavier, and that allows them to land the aircraft more efficiently. This sounds kind of like the way a submarine would manage its buoyancy, right? Very right? similar. By having bladders that expand and contract. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very similar. That's interesting. That. And the Dynalifter, which is another a proposed aircraft that is, um, again, kind of in the planning stages, very similar, uses helium to offset its weight, in this case, the 48%. And uh, then uses those the sort of wings and fins to help provide lift through thrust. Uh, it was tested in 2013. It was built in Ohio, and uh, it has an interesting, an interesting feature, which is that it has detachable pods that can hold cargo. So you can attach the pods to the airship, uh, and then it flies off to its destination. And then it can detach the pods quickly and then fly off again, meaning that you don't have to spend a lot of time loading and unloading the airship itself. You have to do loading and unloading of the detachable pods, uh-huh. but you can do that in advance. And they said that the big advantage of that is, let's say that you have operations that you need to do in an area where perhaps a giant airship tethered to the ground would be a, a, a tempting target for some opposing force. Uh, you don't really want that, right? You don't want an enormous target saying there's something that's vulnerable, particularly if you're planning on either delivering or or taking uh, supplies uh, to a, a, an important part of the world. So yeah. these detachable pods mean that you could very quickly load or unload the, the airship and then have the airship move on its way while you deal with the pods. So the airship could just keep on going and, and do very quick uh, landings and takeoffs to make sure that stuff gets to where it needs to be without too much time being spent being vulnerable on the ground. And then you had the Varia lift, which was a uh, it's, that's a proposed design uh, out of the United Kingdom. It's made of aluminium since it is the UK, <laughs> and uh, it has a top speed of 350 kilometers per hour, which is about 217 miles per hour. It's pretty darn fast for an airship. Uh, also uses helium to offset weight. Um, it can use variable buoyancy units to pump in enough helium to create lift so it doesn't need thrust. It can do vertical takeoff and landing because you don't have to do any sort of thrust to do takeoff. So right. uh, the heaviest design that they have proposed would, in theory, be able to carry more than 500 metric tons of cargo. That's an incredible. And if you look at a picture of the Varia Lift uh, airship, it's it's pretty funky looking. Um, it looks like an aluminum canister floating in the sky from the, <laughs> the the pictures I've seen. I I have just had the most brilliant idea. What's that? Okay, we've talked about flying cars on this podcast before. Yes, we have. And we're always talking about man in an urban environment. How are we going to get the kind of vertical takeoff and landing we want? Airships, personal airships. Yeah, just a little airship, just a little one to okay, get so you to work and get you back here's home. Here's the problem with the little one. Okay. <laughs> How can you have a little airship? I mean, you're not going to you have to have enough of whatever material you're using for buoyancy yeah. to be buoyant. That's right. that's actually quite a bit. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, yeah. So you can't have a little airship, even for one that's just going to lift you and maybe a briefcase. <laughs> Alas. And not to mention, you also well, have to counteract whatever propulsion system you have. There you go. Yeah. OK. So may, maybe instead of a full body car, you'd just be kind of like a, I don't know, a propeller and like a harness for your torso. 
now you're talking essentially about an analog <laughs> jetpack. Like it's not even a jetpack; it's a propeller pack. The future is steampunk jetpacks getting you to. So you're saying. You so what work. you're saying is you want you want an outboard boat motor <laughs> attached to your back while a balloon gives you lift. That's what you want. I'm I'm thinking about the future, Jonathan. So, I don't I, know what you're thinking. I assume about. a top hat and monocle are also standard issue, right? I, I don't say can't. Okay, that's fair. So anyway, uh, some of the technologies we'll see developed about this, a lot of it's material science, just coming up with new lighter materials, like carbon fiber technology has been a big boon to this airship design. Oh, yeah? Because it means that you can create these rigid frames that are very light. You know, They can be as strong as steel or stronger than steel and lighter than steel. So that is one of the big uh, bonuses that, well, you know, it's one of those developments that the airship industry can take advantage of. Yeah. Not to mention just material science for things like the covering that's being used to to make sure that uh, you have a nice, strong seal on whatever gas you're using, most likely helium. Uh, Yeah, that brings me to helium. Now, helium is not exactly the most abundant and cheap resource on Earth, yeah, is it? Yeah, that's a problem. We kind of need helium for important stuff, don't yes, we? Yes, yes. We need helium for many important things, from uh, supercooling uh, particle accelerators to children's balloons. I mean, aren't, aren't there actually people who are mad yes. that, that people are using helium for children's balloons yes. when... We don't have all that much access to it. It's not easy to get to. No, no. Helium is, in fact, one of those things that is very much a precious resource. And uh, and it is a problem. It's not easy to get at. And we need it for lots of important things, including supercooling superconductors. I mean, liquid helium is incredibly cold. And that's what we use to lower the temperature of scientific equipment down to near absolute zero so that it can be a superconductor. Um and that's used for a lot of different things. Yeah, and it's it's weird that people don't usually think of helium as a finite resource like oil or something. Yeah, but it, it kind of is. Yeah, and it's and also it's just I mean, it's not easy to get. So I mean, if we can ever figure out a way of getting all that helium three off the moon, then then maybe maybe we'll be set. But um, yeah, right now it's it's an issue. So yeah, there that isn't that is a problem. And also the technology that we see used in these these devices will largely depend upon what they're meant for, right? A surveillance uh, airship is going to obviously have, you know, sophisticated cameras and and other sensors on it. But one that's for environmental sensing is going to have different sensors on it. One that's meant for just transportation is not necessarily going to be as concerned with all those sensors. Clearly, there will be quite a few for safety and navigation purposes, but not the same sort of thing that you're going to use if you're trying to keep an eye on, you know, a, a giant sporting event or a wildfire or something along those lines. So it'll really depend upon what the airship is meant for. That'll that'll determine what kind of technology is used on it. But another good question is just why do we find these so fascinating? Part of it, I think, is because it is this sort of uh, retro throwback to what uh science fiction and fantasy authors you know what however you want to, weird fiction authors whatever you want to call them back in the day the earliest in the genre how they envisioned the future and a lot of it involved things like zeppelins and dirigibles floating around because at the time that was the cutting edge technology oh sure yeah and so this this kind of vision this sort of quaint retro uh sometimes super elaborate kind of view of what the world would look like is something that appeals to us aesthetically. 
Somehow the vision of dirigibles coming over the horizon toward your city is even more horrifying than a bunch of bomber planes, and I don't know why. It shouldn't be. I mean, it should be easy to shoot down, right? It's the same reason, Joe, why shambling zombies are scarier than running zombies. (laughs) That is an excellent point. Because even though it's slow, you know nothing is going to stop it, and eventually it's going to get you. Yeah. And it's not that it's the sudden attack. It's that you see it coming and you anticipate it and that makes it all the worse. That's why. That's science. Just saying. But no, <laughs> I, it, it is interesting that we see this fascination with this this type of aircraft. I mean, the fact that steampunk has a place and that the dirigible very much occupies a, 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 a spot of love in that world. I yeah. played I played a game at uh, E3 a couple years ago. It was an early build of a game where you were part of a an airship crew. And was it the, Wild Skies? It might have been. I remember that it was very much like you were piloting an airship that was essentially like a pirate ship being carried by a blimp. And you did battle with other airships. Yeah, it might... It, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Wild Skies was one of the games we talked about in our episode about uh, 3D gaming and yeah. virtual reality and full motion yes. 3D because it had been adapted to a sort of free play area where you could move your whole body and, and sort of go between stations on the yeah. airship. Yeah, I think it had been – they had worked with the Oculus Rift folks to do a build for it specifically, Yeah, that kind of thing. And, you know – you couldn't help but feel excited playing a game like that. It just, it, it was so evocative of certain, I don't know, just, just really just kind of tapped into the excitement center of my brain saying, this is so cool. It's such a fantastical and yet ultimately believable kind of scenario in the sense that nothing in that, you know, violated the laws of physics. Well, I mean, at some point, I'm sure you, you reach a point where you can't keep scaling up sure. the airship. And I don't know what that point is. I don't know if you came across that in your research, but just like there's got to be a limit, right, on where how you can contain helium with the kinds of containing materials we have now. I mean, there would be a point where you hit, hit the law of diminishing returns, yeah. right, where you're you're talking about a an airship so heavy that we there's no effective means of using enough helium to to get enough lift. I don't know what that limit is either, but I'm sure there does exist one. I would imagine uh, the larger the container as you keep making it bigger and bigger, just one simple thing about it is it's more likely to leak in more places. Yeah, and then you obviously have the problem of maintaining buoyancy and you won't stay in the air forever. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, uh, this was a fun thing to talk about, Benjamin. Thank you so much for the suggestion. Uh, there are lots of different plans for airships for many different purposes, whether they are going to be manned or unmanned or, or you know, they're flexible and you can be either, uh, whether it's for surveillance, whether it's for transporting cargo or people. There are a lot of different plans and it'll be interesting to see. I was actually I was actually really surprised at how many companies are proposing to do this. And I'm really curious to see which ones end up making good on that proposal, which ones are able to make that happen. Uh, A lot of it ends up coming down to whether or not they can get the funding that's necessary to actually build these things. Uh, Because the technology is there. I mean, the technology's been there. The basic technology's been there since the the late 18th century. (laughs) So it's not that it's a technological barrier so much as it is a financial barrier. And to make sure that you can prove the practical applications are, in fact, useful enough to justify the expense. So assuming that that happens, we're going to see airships in the air, you know, 
not not too long from now. There are some that are, should be launching, literally, by 2016. Whether or not that happens will all come down to whether or not people invest in it. Um, is it a good investment? Pff, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not an investor, so I can't I can't really answer that question. But uh, I, I like the idea of a future where you look up into the sky and every now and then you see an airship, you know, lumbering past. Although any any airship moving at 200 miles per hour, you can't really call lumbering. <laughs> I think I mean, just assuming there will be at least a few occasions where you need to get 500 metric tons of Vienna sausages to the South Pole. It makes sense. I know that there are plenty of people at the South Pole who would be pleased at such a delivery and maybe a few who would roll their eyes. But who knows? We, we, we don't know. We're not at the South Pole. If you're at the South Pole or anywhere else for that matter and you have a suggestion for a future episode, you've got an idea, you want us to talk about a particular type of technology, science, or just wondering what one aspect of the future is really going to be like, ask us. Just like Benjamin did, send us a message either on Twitter or Facebook or Google+. Our handle at all three is FWThinking. Reach us there. We will read your message. We will, uh, you know, if it's a, if it's something that really sparks our interest, we will tackle that headlong and we will do an interesting podcast about it, we promise. Uh, so let us know and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com.
or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that. And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.